We're on lesson number 11, Paul, background and call. Uh, we're going to uh, study here and read about, at least this is the first part of a two-part lesson about the Apostle Paul. And, um, and certainly when we're talking about missions and mi being missionaries, which is what our uh, Bible study uh, guide is about this particular quarter, uh, we have to spend time talking about the Apostle Paul. Uh, the memory text for today's or this week's lesson was taken from Acts 9, verses 15 and 16. And the Bible says, and I'm reading from the New King James Version, but the Lord said to him, that is Ananias, go, for he is a chosen vessel, talking of Paul, he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. In just a moment, we're going to come to a very important question, and I've, I've asked Pastor Luke to answer that question for us in just a minute, and that is, who is Saul? But we're going to come over that in just, in just a minute. I think without a doubt, without a doubt, one of the most prominent figures in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. Um, and uh, originally, of course, Saul of Tarsus, and I just gave away part of the answer, but we're going to come back over to you here, Pastor Luke, in just a minute. Uh, Paul was, according to, I like what it said here in the lesson, Paul was the early church, Christian church, Paul was to the early Christian church what Moses was to the children of Israel. You remember Moses called uh, Israel out of, the, out of a Gentile nation, the, uh, out of Egypt, and uh, to, to do what? To serve God. That's what Moses did. What did Paul do? Paul went from the Israelites to the Gentiles and called them to do what? Serve God. And uh, very interesting, the, uh, the, the similarities in some way between Paul and Moses. And when you think about the Old Testament, of course, one of the prominent figures of the Old Testament comes to mind is Moses. In the New Testament, it's Paul, uh, leader of the New Testament, the early New Testament church. And we'll talk more about him in just a bit. When you think of Paul, what comes to your mind? What comes to your mind when you think of Paul? A couple of, couple of quick things. He's known for his itinerant evangelistic program. You read about the missionary journeys of Paul and how he traveled throughout Asia Minor, taking the gospel uh, to folk there in that region. And, um, and that was a program, by the way, a program that has left its impression upon Christians for 2,000 years. The Christian church has always been embroiled and engaged in missionary activity. And we get our cue and we get some instruction from the Apostle Paul. His methods, his dedication, his zeal and relationship with God uh, have been studied for centuries and have inspired many to also engage in aggressive, if I can use that word, evangelistic outreach for Jesus Christ. Uh, when we think of Paul, what else comes to mind? Paul, uh, Paul is also known for extracting biblical truths, absolute truths, timeless truths from the tightly woven fabric of Jewish tradition and custom in order to be given to the people, to anyone, that they might come to know Jesus Christ and be saved. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in the lesson as we move along. Paul's inspired message and his ministry continue to influence uh, Christians and churches today. So the bottom line question here, at least the, the upfront question, the basic question is, Pastor Luke, who was Saul? Who was Saul? A very important man in the New Testament, of course, we know his name was changed to Paul when he became a Christian. But as you mentioned earlier, he was born in Tarsus, which is actually in Roman territory. Therefore, he was a Roman citizen. His parents were from the tribe of Benjamin. Mm -hmm. So he was a Jew, a, um, 
Christian, a Jew, a Jew, a Christian later, and then a Roman citizen. And we know they called themselves a Pharisee in Philippians uh, 3, 5. That's correct. Called himself a Pharisee, and we know that he wrote 14 of the 27 New Testament yeah. books, so he's very yes. important. Very important. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's a great overview. This is Saul. This is Saul, and we learn that from our lesson here. Uh, in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, just turn over there with me. Acts chapter 7, verse 58. This is the first time Saul is mentioned in the Bible. Acts chapter 7 and verse 58. And it's not flattering in the least. His association with the persecution of the early Christian church. Notice Acts chapter 7 and verse 58. It says, And they cast him out of the city, talking about the deacon Stephen. They cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their coats, coats or their clothes at the feet of a young man named who? Saul. Now, the, the phrase young man doesn't help us really a whole lot determine how old Paul was. A young man could have been between the age of 20 to 40. I would say even 42, because that's a good age to be young still. Um, but we're not entirely sure what age Paul was here, but we know he was a young man. And what he, what he was doing was consenting to the death and the stoning of Stephen. And, um, and so the first introduction to Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul, is not flattering in the least. He was involved in and consented to, and later on was heavily involved in the persecution of the uh, church. Yes, and he was born in Tarsus, Tarsus. that's south-central Turkey. If you want to look at your map, it's south-central Turkey, an important town on the trade route between Assyria and Asia, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 22, verse 3. Um, he was born, yes, to uh, Jewish parents, parents of the diaspora. Diaspora Jews were those who weren't living in the immediate territory of Israel. And uh, his parents were outside there and uh, right there in Tarsus. And so he was born to diaspora Jews and he was from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, as a Pharisee, which he declared himself to be, he was probably a married man, although we don't know anything about his wife. All we know, any, what we do know from the Scriptures is that he had a sister and he had a nephew and that you can read in Acts 23 verse 16. Uh, he was also a Roman citizen. He was educated in Jerusalem. Very likely he was educated until he was 12 years old at the feet of his mother uh, up there in Tarsus. But when he became of age, he probably was sent down to Jerusalem and uh, his keen, bright mind was educated uh, by the famous rabbi Gamma, Gamaliel. You can read that in Acts 22 and verse 3. And uh, Paul, uh, as a common, as a, as a typical Jewish male, uh, he also had a trade. Does anyone remember what Paul's trade was? Or rather Saul's trade was? He was a tent maker, that's exactly right. He made tents, and uh, that was a trade that he had on the side. If uh, if, he wasn't, uh, if his services weren't needed in religious instruction, he always had something to uh, support his livelihood and family with, you see. And, um, and being a Pharisee, uh, what is a Pharisee? A Pharisee was known for, known for being strict observers of all the laws of God, whether they be the moral law, whether they be the Pentateuch, the uh, first five uh, books of, uh, of, the, of the Old Testament written by Moses, uh, whether it be even those traditions that were passed on down uh, from generation to generation that were perceived to be law but were really just tradition, Paul, as a Pharisee, was a very strong uh, advocate for following the laws of God and even those traditional uh, and uh, cultural laws. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, and, uh, and so he was very, he, the leaders in that time thought he was very promising, 
And um, he, again, had, he was bright, he was alert, and very dedicated and a very serious uh, individual. Now, Saul's background as a mission, as a, not as a missionary, but as a Pharisee, rather, as a Pharisee, helped him to be a successful missionary to both the Jews and to the Gentiles. Uh, with his knowledge of the Old Testament and even certain scribal expansions of the Old Testament, uh, he was able to, as it, as it was mentioned earlier, extract timeless biblical truths from that tightly woven fabric of Jewish tradition and culture, which meant that he could make meaningful application of the truths, those timeless truths of the Word of God, to all people that he ministered to. Um, one of the challenges with the early Christian church is, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, is that uh, many converts, Jewish converts to Christianity, believed that Gentile converts to Christianity must first become a Jew. And so Paul was able to help folk differentiate between what was simply custom and tradition and those things that were no longer necessary, shadows because the fulfillment had been met in Christ, and he was able to educate and encourage the Gentile converts as well. So he was, he was strategically poised and positioned um, by providence to be one of the main leaders of the early church after his conversion experience. He was able to differentiate between truth and later cultural additions. I wonder, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, as, as a Seventh-day Adventist church, uh, whether we've making or mistaken traditions for biblical absolutes. I wonder whether at times we, we, we consider the uh, the 9.30 Sabbath school time and the 11 o'clock worship service to be absolute timeless truth. Now, 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 most people go to church at about 11 o'clock and so it's a good idea to start about that time because that's what most Christians are used to. But is that a timeless eternal truth? No, and I'm not, dis I'm not uh, dismissing it or suggesting it's uh, not, in not important and we're going to change our times here. That's we're going to keep the times as they are. Is it possible that sometimes uh, traditions in the Adventist church have been mistaken as biblical absolutes? What would they be? What would some of those things probably be? How important is it that we make clear distinction between the two? How important is it? Are we more interested in baptizing a person into our culture or baptizing them into Christ? And is there a difference? Is there a difference? There certainly is a difference. Now, I, I will be fast and quick to suggest that, uh, that the Adventist culture is founded upon timeless eternal truths in the Word of God. But, you know, as all religious communities, we adapt, adopt certain traditions along the way that aren't necessarily eternal truths. And so it's important that we distinguish between them both, especially when, as missionaries, we serve Jesus Christ. We are baptizing them into Christ, not into a into culture, so to speak, a religious culture. We're baptizing them into Jesus Christ and His eternal truth. Well, let's, uh, let's move on. We're going to go over to uh, Monday's lesson. We just did Sundays, if you didn't know. We did Saul of Tarsus. We're going to go talk about Paul the man. Paul the man. Sometimes when we think of the Apostle Paul, we think of him as being a giant, spiritual giant, super, super Christian and uh, untouchable, someone that uh, no one could ever, uh, uh, ever touch or come close to in, uh, in, in following as an example. And, uh, but Paul was a man. Paul was a man subject to like passions as we are and uh, challenged and buffeted and tempted like all people. And uh, he was a man. And uh, what type of man was Paul or Saul? What type of man was he? What was his personality? What is, what is, a person, what is personality? 
The dictionary defines personality as a combination of characteristics or qualities that make up a person. So what are the characteristics, a combination of characteristics or, or qualities that make up Saul or the Apostle Paul? And what, what, what type of character did Saul have? What is character? The, bio, the dictionary defines character as the mental and moral qualities distinctive to an individual. So what was the personality, the character of Paul? Like what, did, what type of character, characteristics, personality did he have? We're going to look at several verses together, and uh, someone has 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. Mike, that's you. We're going to come to you in just a minute. We need to get a mic down here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. But let's look at a couple of verses. Let's see if we can figure out a little bit about who uh, Saul is. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. Notice what Acts chapter 9, verse 1 says. Acts 9, verse 1 says, Then Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest. The, the, Jewish, the Jews were not content in just persecuting the, uh, the Christians in Jerusalem. They wanted to stretch it to uh, outside, of that, outside of that city. And so Paul came to the high priest, to the priest there, a high priest, and he asked for a letter, asking if he could go up to Damascus, which was north of Jerusalem there, uh, Yep, north of Jerusalem, up the Jordan River, way up northern, northern Israel, up in that, in that area, in Syria, uh, that region, and asked if he couldn't go up there and, and bring men and women uh, back to Jerusalem to be tried and to be, uh, essentially, to persecute them. And so he was very dedicated uh, to his uh, endeavor, wasn't he? Although it was very wrong, that, very wrong what he was doing. Philippians chapter 3, verse 6 and 8. Let's see if we can put a few more pieces together. Philippians 3, verses 6 and 8. The Bible says, and this is Paul writing about himself, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. His, he was zealous and it was, it was directed toward persecuting the Christians. Concerning righteousness in the law, blameless. Couldn't touch Paul when it came to the externals of not only the, the moral law, but also the uh, externals. Uh, the, um, the additions to God's law and even the Jewish traditions. He was blameless. Yet indeed, he, he goes on to write, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. So as a, as a, uh, as a Jew, as a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, he was zealous to persecute, blameless when it came to the law, and yet he had a change of heart. He was converted and did he extend that same dedication to his service for Jesus? Oh man, did, did he ever. Galatians 1 verse 14, he said, And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the tradition of my fathers. All right, Mike, 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. Let's learn a little bit more about Saul who became Paul. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9 and 10. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than the all, yet not, but I the grace of God, which was with me. Thank you so much. Now, I've got a question for you. Based on all that we've said, Mike, how would you summarize Paul, the characteristics, the personality of Paul? I would say he was fervent, energetic, and very humble. Okay, yeah, that's a good summary, I think. How else would you describe Paul from these verses? 
yeah, that was a good summary. <laughs> we're, we're speechless. Uh, that was good. He was, he was, Paul was a man of deep conviction, wasn't he? There's no doubt about that. When you, when you think about his dedication to persecuting the Christians, he was deeply committed to doing that. He was a man of zeal. Now, as Saul, as Saul, he used these characteristics, these traits to persecute the early church. As Paul, he used these traits to do what? Advance the gospel, right? He used these traits to advance the gospel. Now, this idea begs the following questions. What changes in us when we're converted? What changes, what really changes in us when we're converted? Because here, here Paul, zealous, he's, he's a man of deep conviction. Did that change after his conversion? No. What happened to his zeal and his conviction? It was what? Redirected, right? It was redirected. So what really changes in us then when we are converted? The mind, the direction. That's right. That's, that's what repentance involves. Sorrow for sin and a turning away from it. I'm walking this way, away from God in my own path, my own direction. And conversion sets me on another course, another direction. 180 degree turn. Now I'm going this way and I'm doing it for Jesus. So does our, here's the question, does our person, as a, maybe it's a bit of a trick question, does our personality change? Ah, it doesn't change, but it is sanctified. Very good. Excellent. Have we sometimes the mistaken notion of that conversion is, uh, have we had a mistaken notion of conversion to the extent that we have believed our personalities change when we give our lives to Christ? Now, there are some people who don't like who they are. There are Christians who don't like their personality. They think when they come to Jesus that all of a sudden those personality traits are going to be completely different. They're going to be, instead of being timid and shy, they're going to be bold and forthright. Instead of, does that happen right away? Does, any, does that happen all the time, per se? These are challenging and difficult questions for sure. I want to read a statement that I found in a book called Finding a Job You Can Love. And uh, I think some people search high and low all their lives searching for a job they can love. Uh, it's not easy to find one. But he, the author said something very interesting. He said this, the ingredients that are seen before conversion, that is the ingredients of a person's characteristics, their personality are seen before conversion, that are seen before conversion, are seen after conversion. This is disturbing, he goes on to say, to people who expect it to be otherwise. But perhaps we will better understand our position in Jesus if we see that God's intentions for us is not replacement of who we are, but redemption of who we are. I like how he put that. Jesus isn't looking to replace who we are. He loves you. He created you. But he is seeking to redeem us and to take those personality traits and sanctify us. Make us to be more like Jesus. Subdue those coarser, rougher edges, you see. Uh, inspire us if we're a little timid and shy. He's there to refine us. He goes on to say, God's creation of us, including our basic motivational pattern, is not bad. Conversion has us rejoicing in the fact that we are enabled to become who we originally were made to be rather than being someone entirely different. And then in closing, he said, the renewal takes place when we are resurrected in conversion and sanctification causes a radical change, not in the gift we have, but in its purpose and in its use. So what was some of the gifts that Paul had? He was a man of deep conviction, certainly some of the talents he had. He was a man of zeal and energy. He had a bright, intelligent mind. And, uh, and certainly, uh, God didn't change those things when he was converted. What did God do? He repurposed them. 
He redirected them for his mission, for his service, you see. And so it's an important thing to just keep in mind here. Conversion changes our direction, changes our heart, our intentions, our motives, uh, who we are now serving, who is Lord in our lives. It doesn't change the basic fabric of who we are, who God made us to be, if you understand what I'm saying. I don't want to complicate this any more than perhaps I have already. But, uh, but we under, we've got to understand that Jesus, the, in coming to Jesus, He doesn't change the basics of who we are. He refines who we are. And now as a, we're able to become all that we, He designed us to be in Christ Jesus, you see. Conversion does that. We can be what Jesus wants us to be, you see. Well, that's Paul. And that's who he was. And, uh, and then God changed his heart, changed his mind, and God used him in a powerful way uh, to push the gospel out beyond Israel to uh, the Gentiles. Well, let's talk about Paul's conversion. Let's go over to Tuesday's lesson. Let's talk about Paul's conversion, or Saul's conversion to Paul. Did you know, by the way, does anyone know when the first time, when is the first time that Saul refers to himself as Paul? Does anyone know? It's in Acts chapter 13, and it's verse 13. Just a few verses before, he's referring, talking about, uh, to, Luke is talking about Saul, and then in Acts 13, 13, he talks about Paul. Sometimes uh, we get to thinking that uh, Saul's name change came on the road to, the, on the road to Damascus where, when he met Jesus, and it didn't happen then. He was, a, he was a changed man, a converted man. Who else can you think about in the Bible who had a name change? We think about Abram. Abram, his name was changed to Abraham, father of many, a multitude, you see. Sarai, her name was changed to Sarah, that's right. Jacob, deceiver, his name was changed to Israel, prince of God, you see. These name changes indicated a change of character, a change, of who, a change that God had wrought in these individuals' lives. Saul changed his name to Paul indicating his change, his new direction in life, his mission to the Gentiles, you see. Well, let's, uh, we're going to uh, read a few verses. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Who's got that for us here? Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Okay, Jennifer, oh, you're all there by yourself, it seems. All right, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. And uh, when you're ready, Jen, you can uh, go ahead and read that for us. Thanks. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest, and desired of him letters to Damascus into the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound into Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth. And heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And, he, and the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there 
He was three days without sight, and neither did eat or drink. Okay, thank you very much. So here is the conversion story of Saul, who became Paul, on his way to Damascus. And what's his intention? To, to persecute the Christians up in that area. On his way to Damascus, an uh, incredible experience takes place. Paul, Saul, encounters whom? Jesus Christ. That's exactly right. The bright light, hears a voice, and, uh, and this man is, is impressed, more than impressed. What happens? His, his, or, already his heart has changed. Already his direction has changed. And you know that by what? He asks Jesus what? What would you have me to do? What would you have me to do? Not now what I want to do and what I think is best to do, and I'm just going to do it my way, but Lord, what would you have me to do? Is it possible? I mean, essentially, Paul's encounter, Saul's encounter with Jesus changed him, changed him. Is it possible that we don't think change is possible for us? Do we have to have an experience like Saul to have a transformation of heart and life? No, that change that came to Paul is, is as good for anyone who encounters Jesus. How can we be changed like Saul? Well, I just basically said it, didn't I? We have to spend time with Jesus. Coming into the presence of Jesus is what changes and transforms our hearts and our lives. Changes our direction, you see. Changes our thoughts, our, our feelings, our motives. Spending time with Jesus changes us. As uh, you, uh, you can spend time with Jesus reading your Bible. Spend time with Jesus praying. Spend time with Jesus walking and singing. Uh, and, and, and if you want to talk to him, do that, but make sure no one else is around unless they think you're crazy. Um, spend time with Jesus, talk to him, and spend time with him and sharing Jesus with others. These are all things that help us, help us, or at least through, by the grace of God, change us to become more and more like Jesus. The secret to Paul's or Saul's conversion was encountering Jesus. Jesus in all his glory, his magnificence. And what happened? Paul recognized that he was doing wrong. He recognized that he wasn't doing the right thing. Conviction uh, uh, came upon him. His conscience pricked him. He was, uh, he, he, he was um, uh, humbled his heart in contrition and recognized his need of a savior. All this was brought about by spending time with Jesus, and Jesus re redirected his life. Now, I want to take you over to Acts chapter 26, verses 16 to 18, because in this account, when Paul tells a story, it expands, extrapolates a little bit what, um, what the, the answer was when Paul asked, what would you have me to do? The answer is given. And before, we're going to get there, Acts 26, 16, 18, someone has Acts 9, 10 through 19. We're going to continue reading his conversion story here. Who's got Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 19? Who's got that? All right, Mike's got that. Okay, we're going to come to you in just a minute, Mike, thanks. Acts 26, verses 16 to 18, but rise and stand on your feet, this is Jesus speaking, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I have will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive, for, receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I want you to notice something interesting. Paul's conversion experience was directly connected to, uh, was, well, yeah, directly connected to mission. Did you see that? 
As soon as he opened his heart to Jesus Christ, the, the response came, Lord, what would you have me to do? What should I do for you? I've been persecuting you. I've been hurting you in the person of all these individuals that I've been persecuting. And now I want you to change my life, my heart. What would you have me to do? And Jesus responds and he answers and he tells Paul that he's going to become a missionary, an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, Maybe you didn't have an experience like that. Jesus didn't come to you and say, okay, give me your heart. And you said, Lord, here's my heart. And he said, you're going to be now an apostle to this group of people or to these individuals. But in a special sense, does he come to us and he say, now I want you to be my, my minister. I want you to be a soul winner for me. Does, in, a, in a special sense, doesn't Jesus come to each of us when he, when he, when he comes to us and he, and, he, and he invites us to himself and we say, Lord, I want to be entirely yours? He says, good. Now, I want you to share what I've done for you with others and win them to me as well, by my grace, through my spirit. Does that come to each of us? Surely. When we're converted, we're not converted in a vacuum. We're converted for service. We're converted for mission. We're converted for service and sharing Jesus with others. And that's so very important for us to remember. When we give our lives to Jesus, it involves service. Acts 9, 10 through 19. Let's continue the story here. Mike, thanks so much. Acts 9. 10 through 19. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him, so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Mike. And so Paul is led by the hand to Damascus, and there he is staying with uh, Judas, the disciple Judas, and uh, Ananias is told to go talk to Paul, go receive Paul. And, uh, and he tells Ananias, Jesus tells Ananias in vision what his mission, what, what his purpose for Paul or Saul at this time is. And so Ananias, obedient, or a little reluctant at the beginning, and you would be a little bit too, wouldn't you? Paul was, Saul was zealous in persecuting the Christians. And you're telling me, Lord, that he's really had a change of heart? Can I be so sure? Jesus speaks to him and says, go, he's my vessel, he's going to be my instrument for the Gentiles. And so he spent three days with Ananias, 
And during those three days, and you can read the account in Acts of the Apostles, the inspired commentary on, on, uh, on this situation and this experience, we're told that he was, during this time, his, his heart was so sorrow, sad and sorrowful for what he had done to the Christians. He was studying the prophecies, he was, and, uh, and link after link of truth was being connected together in his mind. You know, you've got to know, he, he had probably most, most parts of the Old Testament memorized. He understood the prophecies of the Messiah, and as he was studying them again, the Holy Spirit was enlightening his mind, and he was realizing that these prophecies all pointed to Jesus Christ, the one who met him on the road, the one whom he'd been persecuting through his followers. Through these three days, he was studying and, and, and confessing and repenting of his sins. He gave his entire heart and life over to Christ. He rose and he was baptized. It's interesting, and I want to just read this to you from Acts of the Apostles, page 121. Uh, Ellen White says, Christ had performed the work of revelation and conviction, and now, and now the penitent was in a condition to learn from those whom God had ordained to teach his truth. God connected Saul to his church in order to provide him with instruction and with direction. And here, he is encouraged to work for the Gentiles. I'm wondering what this should tell us about the important work Christ has given to his church. What is the purpose of the church? And we can say missions and evangelism and sharing the gospel, yes, but there's another part of, of, the, of the work of the church. And what is that? Discipling. The question is, to disciple? That's exactly right. So, so Jesus had Saul connect with Ananias, who was a, part, a member of the church. And through Ananias, through the church, Paul, was re, Paul received instruction, guidance and direction. And uh, the same is for us today. How do we help engage people in service once they've given their lives to Jesus? Maybe the question should be, do we try to engage people in service after they've given their lives to Jesus? Here's a, here's a very important question. Is this work to be left solely to the pastor alone to accomplish? No, it'd be impossible, wouldn't it? I mean, imagine if 3,000 souls were converted in one day here in Sacramento. It'd be impossible for the pastors to manage that. We'd all have to do something, invite folk around, let them, let them see how we live the Christian life, nurture them, encourage them in service. We all have a part to play, don't we? God, is, God connects His people to the church, and that's very, very important. We have a question that's come in. Uh, this is from Timothy in Sacramento. The question is, is there much evidence Paul used Scripture of prophecy in his missions? Um, that's a great question. And what I'm going to do with that question is I'm going to, Timothy, refer that to next week's lesson. But I'll say this, yes, Paul often referred to Old Testament prophecies um, to talk about his uh, encounter with Jesus and to establish the Jesus he met. He didn't just talk about his own conversion experience and meeting Jesus, but he talked about the Old Testament prophecies confirming that Jesus had met the qualifications for Messiahship. He was the one whom the prophecies talked about. So certainly, yes, Timothy, thanks for that good question. But next week, we're going to talk more about his message and his mission, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll deal with that in uh, more detail, and we'll get to that. Now, we've got uh, a last, last couple of verses here in chapter 9. Uh, Acts chapter 9, verses 20 to 22. Who has that for us? Right over here. All right, thank you so much. Acts chapter 9, verses 20 to 22. I'm going to read for you before we come over. I'm going to read for you Acts of the Apostles, page 124. I want you to notice these words. God, in His providence, not only spared Saul's life, but converted him, thus transferring a champion and a severe critic, Paul, with his stern purpose and undaunted courage, possessed the very qualifications needed for the early church. And we talked about this before. 
you know, in, uh, in warfare, if you kill the, uh, kill the general or you kill the leader, uh, you've accomplished a great feat. He can't serve the enemy anymore. Not that you're going to go out and do that, but you, you understand my, my illustration. But what happens if that leader defects and joins the opposite side? That's the last thing the opposition wants, isn't it? And what happened to, what happened to Saul? Did Saul defect? He defected and became a mighty, uh, powerful instrument in the hand of God to push the, the, the claims of the gospel, the message of the gospel uh, beyond Israel to, to the Gentiles. And so Paul, with his stern purpose and undaunted courage, possessed the very qualifications needed in the early church. Are we ready to come to Acts chapter 9 and verses 20 to 22? Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogue, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on the name in this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that the Jesus is the Christ. Mm. Thank you, Beverly. Appreciate that. So what was happening after his baptism? What did Paul do? kind of hung around, sat around. No, he was energetic, enthusiastic. He went straight to the synagogues and started opening the scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, and declaring that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. And he grew in strength. And there, there were some nervous Christians around, for sure. And you'd be too, and I would be. But uh, they saw that God was using Saul in a powerful way, and they became more and more convinced. And Saul was used more and more in the service of God. Well, let's go over to Wednesday's lesson. Let's talk about Paul in the mission field. Paul in the mission field. What are some of the aspects of Paul's successful missionary work that we can put into practice today? There's several things. Number one, Christ was central in Paul's preaching. Christ was central in Paul's preaching. We're going to come to a few verses in just a second. But secondly, secondly, through Paul's activities, through his missionary work, missionary centers of influence, churches, were established all across the region. And thirdly, <clears throat> Paul was very... Uh, very much engaged in the work of nurturing and caring for the newly established members. They were his constant concern and his, uh, that were his constant concern. Their welfare was his constant concern. Uh, that's when we think about the letters that he wrote in the New Testament, they were to churches, to these, a lot of these folk who are new converts and his concern for them is expressed in these pastoral letters uh, to them. And so Paul was very successful, and we can probably learn the same from him uh, today, can't we? Making sure that Jesus Christ is central to our preaching, our teaching, and our sharing. Making sure that, uh, that we're planting more churches as God leads us. Wouldn't it be wonderful for this church to plant another church? Granite Bay is going like gangbusters. Wouldn't it be wonderful to establish a church in Folsom, over there by that lake that's drying up a little bit? We pray for more rain, but uh, wouldn't it be great to plant churches where there's no Adventist church in that particular area? Planting churches left, right, and center. And then, of course, nurturing and caring for newly established members. Let's take a look at Paul's preaching. I want to read a few verses. Uh, someone has Galatians 6, verse 14. Is that you, Diana? Okay, Diana's got that. We're going to come right over to you in just a moment. Romans chapter 15 and verse 19. Notice, Paul, in mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about uh, Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. What did Paul do? All around the region, he did, he'd done what? Preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice 1 Corinthians 
Chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews as a stumbling block, because why? They had rejected uh, Jesus as Messiah. And to the Greeks, it was what? It was foolishness. They didn't want to accept uh, this idea that the death of this man could accomplish much of anything. That's humiliating. So it was foolishness to the Greeks. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Thanks, Diana. Galatians 6, 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Hmm. I have a question for you, Diana. Why is it, why is it so important to keep Jesus central in our preaching, in our teaching, and in our sharing of him? Why, what is, why, is it so, why is it so important to keep Jesus central in our messages, in our preaching? Because only Jesus can save. Amen. Neither doctrines nor prophecies alone can, uh, can do that. Okay. I appreciate your answer. Thank you so much. Neither, neither doctrines or prophecies can alone can save us. Yeah, who saves us, friends? Jesus. That's why Jesus was central to the preaching of Paul. He uplifted Christ. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, it will do what? Draw all men to me. He didn't say if my doctrines or my teachings are lifted up. Now, are doctrines and teachings important? Absolutely. We know that they are. Probably goes without saying. Uh, certainly goes without saying. They're very essential, very important. Doctrines nor prophecies can save us. Is there a risk that we can get off track and think that uplifting and defending doctrines only is sufficient in converting people? Surely. Surely we can get off track and start thinking that. Uh, but we need to remember that it's the, we need to remember that is the, it is the truth in Jesus that has converting power. Doctrines alone, prophecies alone, doesn't have power to convert and change people. It can arrest a person's attention. It can probably satisfy their, their, their rationale and reasoning and their curiosity to some degree. But it doesn't have converting power if Jesus is not lifted up and doesn't come with the power <clears throat> of the Holy Spirit. What is the, what's the purpose of doctrines in the believer's life? What's the main purpose of doctrines in the believer's life? Well, essentially, doctrines clarify the nature, the character, the intention, the plans and purposes of God. Doctrines uh, give us a, a little clearer picture of who God is. And as you study, study doctrines as they are in Jesus, we're drawn closer to Him and our understanding of who God is is enhanced and it, is, it is increased. We've got to consider uh, doctrines like, uh, like a skeleton, the backbone of the, of, of, the, of the church. And the gospel as the flesh, the sinews, the muscles, you see. Um, doctrines are essential, but we need, when we preach the truth, we must always preach the truth as it is in Jesus. Jesus must always be central. We must always lift him up. Teaching someone about the Sabbath, as important as it is and as necessary as that is, cannot convert a person unless people understand that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. You understand. So when we preach a, t a doctrine, Jesus must be uplifted always first and foremost, you see. We must preach the doctrines but we must preach Jesus in those doctrines. Yeah. Let's run over to Thursday's lesson. Thursday's lesson, multiculturalism. The lesson tells us that according to the Oxford English Dictionary, this word first appeared in the 1960s. It's a recent term. If we go back in time, people were categorized into two groups, you and me, or them and us. The Greeks thought about those who were non-Greeks as barbarians. The Jews called non-Jews what? Gentiles. And, uh, and so... The early church struggled with this Jew-Gentile divide as the gospel spread beyond Israel's borders. 
The question was, should a Gentile become a Christian without first becoming a Jew? Now, Richard, you've got Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, and we're going to come to you in just a moment here. The mission in multiculturalism, the gospel goes to all people. It's not just for certain people, it goes to everybody. Richard, when you're ready, let's take a look here. Galatians 2, 11 through 14. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Hmm. Richard, what did, uh, what did Peter do that was so wrong? to me that Peter allowed uh, what other Jews thought about his association with the Gentiles to influence his actions. Right, exactly. So as soon as the Jews had come down, he got a little disturbed uh, that they might think ill thoughts of him, and so he disassociated himself from the Gentiles, you see, uh, before he was eating with them. But in the presence of the Jews, he got a little concerned and let them influence his actions. Uh, I'd like to read for you Acts of the Apostles, page 197 and 198, to help you understand what was going on here. But I'm going to give you that reference and you can read that later. Fortunately, Peter did seek to, to work out and to, to correct his mistake that he had made when he was confronted by Paul. But there's a lesson that we can learn in this incident in our ministry with those who are not Christians or who are not of our faith. Does a person have to know Adventese, the language of Adventism, or eat Loma Linda foods before we accept them into membership? No, surely not. Can we take this too far, though, this idea too far, by thinking that certain doc distinct doctrines don't need to be taught and accepted before welcoming a person into welcomeship? Yeah, we can take it too far, and unfortunately some do. It's always very important that we know the difference between the Adventist message and, the, and cultural Adventism when we win people to Jesus Christ. Sometimes there is a difference, and we talked a little bit about that earlier on. Sometimes the, sometimes the two blend, blend uh, cross paths, but sometimes they do not, and we need to make sure we make that clear distinction. Well, in closing, the Apostle Paul drew strength from his experience with Jesus in order to become better acquainted with unbelievers, in order to win them to Jesus Christ. The question for you and I this morning is what lengths are we willing to go to to bring somebody to Jesus. Paul went to great lengths, didn't he? The question is, will we go to great lengths for Jesus as well? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.